Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. Bill, we have so much to catch up on. We had a week off because it was uh, the All-Star break and summer vacation and you were away and I was off and uh, lots of stuff happened in the last couple of weeks. So I don't know if we can cram everything into a single Twin Bills, but we're going to do our best here. This is Bill Corey, the sports editor of The Journal. With me is Bill Koch, our Red Sox writer. Uh, happy to be inside a, an air-conditioned office on this uh, sweltering Saturday afternoon. Uh, where I, it, it, I swear, Bill, it feels 10 degrees hotter here than at home. Yeah, it, it's nothing uh, personal to the folks who work here, but generally, you know, as a baseball writer, you're not in the office very much. Uh, today is one of those days where I'm actually glad that I am here, though, <laughs> having functioning air conditioning. Right. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a horrendous day outside. The heat index is well over 100. It's going to be the same on Sunday. Um, but it's very much worthwhile to come in here for the AC and to get back to the Twin Bills uh, for folks. Folks who, who aren't in the room, and that's all of you, but Bill and I. Uh, Bill Corey's looking tanned and, and rested off his own personal all-star well, break. tan anyway. Well, <laughs> off his own personal all-star break uh, last week. Um, and as he said, with the Red Sox, there there's never a dull moment. But in the period from the last podcast to this one, it seems like... It, there's been even more volume on the news side, even more things happening Lots of in stuff, absolutely. So uh, we're going to jump right in here uh, with the, I think the first thing we, we'll hit on uh, this uh, this week, Bill, is the David Price, Dennis Eckersley ongoing feud, which kind of reared its ugly head out of nowhere a couple of weeks back when uh, yeah. there was a Chad Finn story in the Globe and then uh, a WEI story. Um, and, you know, to me... This all goes back to a single word that Dennis Eckersley uttered about a bad outing that uh, um, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez had, and that word was yuck. Correct. And boy, a lot has come of that. What do you make of this whole thing? Um, It's a mess, obviously. It's a bad look for the team. It's a bad look for everyone involved. Um, I will say that you know, as someone who, who had to cover this story this week... Uh, I wish it would go away. I, I know that I know that there's a prevailing opinion out there. It's a talker, though, Bill. Well, I understand that, and and I understand that there's a prevailing opinion out there from some people on social media that the folks who cover the team are loving this because it's getting exposure to what we write and it's getting people to buy the newspaper or yeah. read us online or whatever else. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't enjoy any of this. I, I think it's a soap opera. I would rather focus on what's going on in the field. Um, but considering that you have a pitcher who is of great importance and great prominence with the current Red Sox uh, and someone who you know is a legend with the club and, and a very successful analyst on Nesson currently, uh, you're going to have something that is going to be in the sports pages, going to be written about, going to be talked about, and 
that's how we find ourselves here. You know, um, I'm old enough to remember watching Dennis Eckersley pitch with the Red Sox. Mm. Uh, and he was a very good starting pitcher. Obviously, he had some struggles, uh, left uh, Boston, and really became the Hall of Fame pitcher when he was with the Oakland A's as the... Uh, that came into my era a right, little bit in the as, late 80s. As the closer. Yes. Uh, just really automatic. I mean, he was a uh, lights-out closer for several years, playing for Tony La Russa, followed La Russa to, to uh, St. Louis, eventually came back to the Red Sox for a single season at the end of his career. And, you know, uh, I love Dennis Eckersley on the broadcast. He, he tells it like it is. I like the Eckisms. I like the pair of shoes. I like the cheese. I like the hair, the moss, everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for Eckersley, uh, for, well, first of all, I, I will say this. I think David Price uh, really kind of overreacted to a very simple criticism of a very bad pitching outing. Uh, that wasn't even about him. It was about uh, uh, Erod. This all the way back in July 2017. We're going back two years yes. now, right? Where Eck uh, basically said yuck. Correct. And uh, to to kind of refresh people's memories, um, there was a uh, incident on a team plane. Eckersley came in. Price said something to him along the lines of, "Oh, this guy thinks it's easy" or something like that. Right. And and that's really never been kind of uh, resolved. Correct. Um, which you know. Makes me wonder why haven't the Red Sox or why hasn't Nesson, why hasn't somebody pulled these guys into a room and say, guys, just can you hash this out? It seems like a pretty simple thing. Yeah, the, for me, this type of thing, and, and, you know, I would actually defer to your experience on this because, you know, for the folks who listen to the podcast, they might know that Bill Corey has two daughters. And I've met one of them. She's lovely. Uh, I'm sure your other young lady is, is equally lovely. But yes, I'm also thanks. certain that at times, as their father, there are times where they are squabbling. And, sure. uh, you know, as a parent, you don't want that sort of thing to fester and to linger. And so you sit them down in a room and you say, all right, ladies. Especially if it's a silly thing. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's one thing if they genuinely disagree on something that's meaty and, and you know, significant. Right. But... You know, this is kind of a silly thing. I mean, you know, he said yuck about a bad outing. You know, I don't think it would have taken that much to kind of hash it out. But anyway, that didn't happen. This, Here this we would are be two along years the lines later. Of she used my hairbrush or my shampoo. <laughs> right. It's like, all right, stop it. Yeah, right. Both of you. Right. Cut it out. Right. I'll go buy you a new $3 hairbrush or something. Sit right? in the room, talk to each other. Hug it out, and that's it. It's over. I don't see Dave Price as a hugger. But no, and, and and that goes back to your initial point. Someone from the Red Sox and someone should from Nesson should have stepped in. Yeah. There should have been mediation on both sides. There should have been a meeting that was not optional attendance. Price and Eckersley should have been forced to go to the meeting. Probably, yeah. And this would be over. Yeah. It would be I mean, over. We, I sort of thought it was over, you know, and then it just came up out of the blue. Well, and that's, and that's where we run into some difficulty here. Uh, you know, apparently at the time. Now, I, I, I want to say this very clearly before we get started. David Price was wrong. What he did to Eckersley was wrong on that flight. Um, you know, Eck was, was commenting on a rehab start by Eduardo Rodriguez where he had a very difficult time. They showed his final line on the broadcast, and Eck's reaction to it was, yuck. That got passed along to David Price somehow, and he sort of expressed himself to Eckersley in this sort of misguided, insecure way of, of flexing his muscles, of, of sort of demonstrating leadership. I think he has the wrong perception of that. I think he has it wrong. He sees it as, I'm going to stick up for Rodriguez in this way. 
um, I feel it's my duty as as someone older, as his teammate, to defend him against Eckersley for being so flippant and so critical of him. Um, I think he overplays that a little bit. Right. Um, I also think that he misunderstands Eckersley's role on the broadcast. Eck is good TV. Oh, he's great. He is. Yeah, he's great. He's good TV. That doesn't mean being good TV does not mean that you're going to like everything he has to say. Uh, I mean, you grew up in the era of Howard Cosell. You understand what it's like. Sure. You're trying to be thought-provoking. You're trying to be a little bit incendiary. Um, It's not always going to be... You know, vanilla ice cream, and, and we're going to go to bed after that. Uh, that's not what Eckersley does. He is excellent on Nesson in that regard, but every once in a while, that's going to grate on some feelings because he is going to tell it like it is and be a little critical. And, and that's what we love about Eckersley Correct. because he's not somebody that we uh, identify as a hundred percent company man, so to speak. Correct. If he sees something on the field that doesn't uh, doesn't make sense or he doesn't agree with. He lets you know about it. And that's what you want in a color commentator, you know? Correct. Um, and so those two fundamentally misunderstand each other. Apparently, yeah. They do. Right. I, I think Price thinks that Eckersley's supposed to be a cheerleader or something. Correct. Um, and, you know, I think that Eckersley looks at Price and saying, you know, what do you, why does this bother you so much over one? Right, I'm on TV. This is what I'm supposed uh, to do. Is, You're not I'm, supposed right. to care about what I say. <laughs> this is my shtick, you right. know. Um, so we go back to 2017 and we have that initial incident and, right. and Price was wrong, period. Keep that in mind because I'm about to say some things that you won't like. Um, Price realizes he's wrong. He asked for a meeting with Eckersley about a month later. That meeting is set up. He gets to Fenway Park early, and Eck doesn't show. Mm. If Dennis Eckersley shows up to that meeting, it's over. Now, he's not obligated to do so. He was the one who was wrong. But this would have been finished. It would have been. Yeah. They would have heard each other out. Guaranteed they would have come to some sort of understanding and not talked about it again. You flash forward to February 2018, spring training. Price is asked about it again. And he says... I apologize to Eck. I handled it wrong. I wish I had done it differently. I'm content to not talk about yeah. it again. I mean, he basically said the right thing at that point. And he didn't for another 16 months. Right. He didn't speak about that incident again until this week. Eckersley's comments in the Chad Finn piece, the way that they were repackaged by WEI and put out onto social media... That's what Price saw, that clickbait headline repackaging one line in a 2,000-word profile right. that was put up there to make Price look bad. He reacted to that. Mm. And I think that's where you have this latest flashpoint from. Now, I would look back and I would say, Chad Finn was absolutely right to ask Eckersley about the incident. That's his job as a reporter. It was a big story. Eck responded pretty benignly. Mm. You know, he sort of said, I don't know what I'm, you know, I don't know how he expects me to handle it. I'm ready to move on, whatever. Very simply, X could have said no comment. I'm not going there, Chad. I'm, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Once he does that, it doesn't even get included in Finn's piece. He doesn't even bring it up. It's 2,000 words without that. He just cuts that part out. It's gone. <laughs> right. But that's not X. That's not who he is. He mm. doesn't do no comment. It was asked and answered, and, and it blows up into this. Right, and the answer was, you know, I, I have no plans on meeting with him, never, essentially. Right. Something like that. So in that respect, you know, Eck isn't entirely clean in all this. Right. Not entirely. Um, 
you know, mostly he's he's still the aggrieved party on the balance. But he's not entirely clean. Right. He had the opportunity to, to go and sit down with. Say, no, I'm not talking about that. Right. Or, or to meet with Price, you know, Skip a little the meeting, while. Right. And, and he also could have said, no, I'm not I'm not talking about right, that. Right. Yeah. I'm not I'm not doing that. Um, and now we, we have more today uh, from Cooperstown where Eck was talking to Dan Shaughnessy from the Boston Globe. And he said that David Price is essentially my new Kirk Gibson. <laughs> he, he's my new, you know, great adversary here. What's that going to do? To, to kill this. Yeah. No, that's going to make it worse. That's going to make it even worse. Yeah. Um, so this is, the bottom line is this is just bad on both sides. It's a bad look for the team. It's a bad look for Nesson. It's a bad look for Price. It's a bad look for Eckersley. Yeah. Uh, it's something that should have been squashed a long time ago. And, and I could see a room with four people in it. Price, Eck, Kevin Gregg, who's Red Sox Vice President of Public Relations. Yeah. And pick someone else. Dale Arnold. Dave O'Brien, he can be ex-corner person. The four of them get in a room, they hash it out. You've got the neutral parties there to calm everything down if they start screaming at one another. And it's over. But that should have been done a long time ago, and the fact that it hasn't leads us to where we are now. Yeah. You know, and and I agree that that (coughs) Eck is not exactly uh, uh, squeaky clean on this. Um, You know, he had some comments that were critical of Marcus Stroman not too long ago, the the Blue Jays pitcher being a little too demonstrative on the mound. Who was teammates with Price in Toronto in 2015. Right, right. And, you know, as you and I were talking earlier... Of all people, Eckersley, and I remember Eckersley as a closer, and so do you. Sure. I mean, he was pretty demonstrative, wasn't he, when he, no when he punched somebody out? No question. So, I mean, for he him was, to... He was hypocritical there. Right. For him to come out and say a little too too demonstrative, I mean, you know, that that definitely was hypocritical. But um, anyway, we'll see. We'll see what the next the, the, <laughs> the next shoe to drop in this thing is. I'm, I'm amazed it's lasted this long. It clearly got some uh, some new fuel to the fire. Um but, you know, like you said, it could have been handled and ended a long time ago. Should have. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's, uh, l- let's turn our attention to uh, what's ha- actually happening on the field. Please. <laughs> uh, so uh, some recent changes here with the Red Sox um, uh, rotation, and that is uh, recently they've added uh, Andrew Kashner from uh, the Baltimore Orioles. Did not have a uh, sterling outing for the Red Sox uh, a few days back. No. Uh, this is basically an innings eater. Uh, you know, somebody who's probably the, the four or five guy in the rotation. Uh, what do you think of that of that trade, Bill? Um, I think it was something the Red Sox had to do. If you look at what's happened in that fifth spot in the rotation, going back to April when Nathan Avaldi went on the injured list, um, that five spot, you'd rotated through... Brian Johnson, Hector Velasquez, Josh Smith, Ryan Weber, Darwins and Hernandez. That five spot had over a six ERA, over a one fifty whip, um, and they were short outings. They they were leaving your bullpen exposed. They're mm-hmm. having to cover fifteen outs, eighteen outs every fifth day. It's just too much. Right. Um, so I think Kashner is someone who can give them a little bit of length. Uh, they gave up very little price for him. Two 17-year-old prospects, uh, Nolberth, Romero, and Elio Prado, who are in the Dominican Summer League. Um, Baltimore is paying all of Kashner's salary, which is important if the Red Sox want to make another move. Doesn't hurt their caps, their salary cap space. Correct. They still have about $6 million to play with under the competitive balance tax. Um, so I think generally it's, it's a very low-risk move for Boston to make to address an area of need. Uh, and in doing so, uh, a couple of other um, 
things happened on the roster, namely Eduardo Nunez was designated for assignment. So what what becomes of Eduardo Nunez now? Uh, he was officially given his release earlier today, which means he's signed. He's free to sign with any club for yep. the veterans minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, his contract was going to run out at the end of this season. I, I think it's important to note that you know Nunez exercised a player option for himself. Uh, that was not a team option. Mm. It was a one-year, $6 million deal for 2018 with a player option built in for 2019. Um, so it was his choice to be here yep. this year. It uh, wasn't necessarily Boston's. And, and you know he just didn't perform. They, they had him in a role where they sort of wanted him to play against left-handed pitching, and he wasn't necessarily hitting them. Uh, Brock Holt is back and healthy and looking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marco Hernandez has more long-term value to them in terms of someone who is under team control for a while and who can play multiple positions. Uh, and then Michael Chavis obviously has emerged and, and taken a lot of the other at-bats that Nunez might have gotten. Sure. Um, so I think it's you know sad to see him go. He was a really nice guy, uh, really well liked in the clubhouse, particularly by Bogarts, by Rafael Devers, by Eduardo Rodriguez. Those guys were very close. Um, you know, but it's a move that, that they definitely need to make, and, and I think it was something that had been coming for a little bit. Um, and there have been other changes on the roster, too. Uh, uh, Brazier has been sent down to, uh, down to Pawtucket. Uh, and as of today, on Saturday, they have activated Nathan Evaldi, who, as we know now, will be uh, in, the, in the mix for the bullpen. So um, as, as the Red Sox really are approaching sort of the, the do-or-die part of the schedule, which we'll get to in a, in a second, the, uh, the, the roster is, is uh, getting a little uh, refresher. Um, and, you know, I, I'm excited to see what happens with Nathan Evaldi in the bullpen. I mean, I think he can do it. I'm not convinced that he wants to do it. But um, I think, as you and I have said many times on the podcast, they need another arm in that bullpen. And he's he's got a great arm. Yeah, I think you're making the best of an imperfect situation here. If you were going to bring him back as a starter, he probably wouldn't be ready to be activated until mid-August let's say. Because you have to stretch them out. Right. Yeah. So 20, 25 games from now, and they're coming up on a really critical stretch in the schedule, playing mm-hmm. the Rays and playing the Yankees. Uh, any sort of postseason chase that they were going to be on could be lost already by then. Um, you know, So you definitely you want to sort of try to maximize him down the stretch, and that means bringing him out of the bullpen. And, and I think what you're going to see is you know, him, Matt Barnes, and, and Brandon Workman on the back end. Mm. Uh, you know, Sort of three, two really power arms there, Barnes and, and Evaldi, and you know, someone in Workman who opposing hitters have really struggled against, uh, you know, in terms of batting average and slugging percentage, it's it's negligible what they've done against him. Do you think that there will be a designated closer, or do you think it'll be basically Barnes and Evaldi, depending on the matchup, depending on the day kind of thing? I think they've sort of settled on Workman for that role. What, what I really think this is designed to do, and I think we even saw this last year, is mm-hmm. Alex Cora sort of had like two different platoons in his bullpen. He had the winning bullpen, and he had the losing bullpen and it was you know the guys when they were winning games they were going to get used mm-hmm. and certain other guys when they were losing games those guys were going to get used right, right. I think what this is designed to do is to give him a couple more quality arms so that when they're down four to two he doesn't put one of the b-side in I think this acknowledges the fact that they need to win games yeah, yeah they're on the outside you can't just automatically at, give up at that point right that's right and yeah. so if it's a four to two game in the sixth inning you know he's not going to go to Josh Smith if he's up there. Um, you know he's not going to go to Hector Velasquez yep. if he was up there. Like last year, he would have gone to Joe Kelly losing four to two or Heath Hembry. Right. He wasn't going to go to Barnes, Kimbrel, 
Brazier. Those three guys were sort of the you know the back end preferred back end right. guys by the end of the season. Right, that was the winning bullpen. Correct. They were not going to pitch in a five three game in the eighth inning. It wasn't going to happen. Right. Um, but now I think you're seeing a little bit of a shift and, and a little bit of acknowledgement really by the Red Sox that they're on the outside looking in for playoff berth right now. And you know, making these moves, whether it's changes in the lineup or changes in the pitching staff, sort of acknowledges the fact that they do need to win games here. Absolutely. Um, and as um, another piece of the uh, roster uh, change here is Mitch Moreland, who you saw last night in Pawtucket, is going to get another game, at least one more game down there. Mm. What's uh, what's the status of Moreland? How long do you think before he will be back with the uh, the big club? Uh, played five innings on Friday night. He went 0 for 2 with a walk. Uh, that was a seven-pitch at bat in the first inning. He, he looked good in that one. Uh, only had a couple chances in the field, but you know looked to be moving pretty well. Uh, he's back in the Paw Sox lineup on Saturday. The goal is for him to play seven innings. Uh, ideally, he gets four at-bats. Um, and then I think they'll have a discussion in Boston about whether or not to activate him. Uh, you know, I think he's he's someone who they've missed in the lineup. Uh, you know, Chavis has done well uh, as a rookie at first base. Um, but you look at Moreland, and, and through his 47 games this year, he had 22 extra base hits, which is pretty good clip that he was going at uh, in terms of doubles and, and home runs and and I just think that they miss that bat in the lineup particularly against right-handed pitching uh, they miss his professionalism his leadership you know not that there isn't some there already mm. in the clubhouse there is uh, it's not like they're rudderless or you know anything like that but he's a key piece there uh, you know he's a guy who gets along with everybody and and you know sort of comforting to have there and yeah, he's had some big moments in the middle of that lineup. Sure. Uh, you know, so someone who they would welcome back with open arms if he's healthy and ready to go. Um, so uh, today is uh, July twentieth, and as I look at the standings, the uh, the division leaders in the American League are the Yankees, the Twins, and the Houston Astros. Yep. The two wild card uh, holders at this point, anyway, are the Cleveland Indians and the Oakland A's. Correct. Uh, so Tampa Bay is a half game out of that, and the Red Sox are two and a half games out of that. Yep. Um, and they have uh, a game tonight in Baltimore. Although you know, last night that didn't go so well in Baltimore. Did not. Uh, David Price got hit around pretty good as they as they dropped that game. So they get tonight and tomorrow in Baltimore, and then they've got. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, the Yankees and the Rays basically for two weeks, right, Bill? Right. Uh, so this is essentially do or die here. I mean, you can come out of these two weeks and your season could essentially be over. Or you could really fight and make a uh, uh, a go of it and get yourself right back in the thick of the wild card race. I don't think you're going to catch up to the Yankees in terms of the division. But, you know... I remember 1978, and it, it can happen, <laughs> but it probably is not going to happen. Uh, so what are we thinking here heading into the into these two weeks? Well, first things first. Let, let's take on the challenges that are in front of you. Uh, the Rays are directly in front of you. Cleveland and Oakland are directly in front of you. Those are the teams that you need to overtake yeah, first right. before you worry about the Yankees. I, Of course you want to win the division. And right. Of course you want to get into the ALDS. Yeah, you, you, you just need Ws at this point. It doesn't matter who. <clears throat> Correct. You need to get to a point where you are in playoff position. And you've jumped those three teams, and then you can worry about trying to chase the Yankees. You know, as as unlikely as that would be that right. you're going to catch them with 60 games left, um, you need to worry about taking care of the Rays. 
taking care of Cleveland when you go there in August. Uh, you're all done with Oakland, but you hope that you know maybe Houston can do a number on them somehow, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know they might have an injury or, or something along those lines. Um, you know, but it's it's one of those things where I think Boston just needs to really handle their own business. Uh, you know, you're playing Tampa, who's sort of sliding a little bit now. They're struggling a little bit. Yep. Um, you know, the Yankees are, are still going along pretty good and, and will be a tough opponent. You actually get them to come to Fenway Park for the first time this year, so you maybe you have a chance to to do a little something against them. Well, at you home. did have you did have two home games with them. Home uh, games, home games quote in London. Fingers. My quote <laughs> fingers are in the air. Neither of which worked out very well. Oh but. my God! And both of which took about five hours. Uh, it was a total right. joke. Um, yeah, but that's. That's one of those things that, you know, yes, you're playing the next two weeks against the two best teams in your division right now, the two teams who are in front of you. You've struggled against teams with 500 records or better. Um, so this is your real test. You come out of this and you're 8-6, and 9-5, and five, something like that. That's a pretty good go. Hmm. What you really need to avoid, though, is something like a 4-10, and 10, a 5-9, and nine, because you'll really be losing ground head-to-head with the teams that you need to take care of. It would really be surprising and supremely disappointing if the Red Sox did not make at least the playoffs a year after winning 108 games, winning the World Series, Agreed. and essentially returning the same team. Agreed. You know, um, I think that uh, you know, thinking that they could repeat is maybe a little too lofty uh, at the beginning of the season. Certainly not. They weren't going to win another 108 games, but to not even make the playoffs was would be really disappointing for a team that truly has. You, I mean, you look at their uh, on paper and you you say, well, they've got the talent to do it, and I'm sure the front office has been saying the same thing. Like, where are these guys? What's happening? Right. And um, you know, uh, the the. The trade deadline is is now fast approaching, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks away, and I don't know, is Andrew Kashner it, or do you think there's more on the way? Well, the fact that they didn't take on salary for Kashner, I, I think, is important. I think that they maintained some flexibility by doing that. Uh, you know, you still have about $6 million left, which, you know, over the course of, of a season, prorated, you've played... You know what? About three fifths of the year mm. at this point, mm-hmm. so you're only taking on forty percent of someone's salary. That means you can take on a, a fourteen, fifteen million dollar player because you're only paying probably the last forty yeah, percent, right, right? Whatever that is, five or six you know, million. Six million. Yeah. So realistically, you could get a good bullpen arm for that. Uh, you know, you could get you could get into a discussion with someone like Jose Abreu from the White Sox, whose contract expires at the end of this year. Right. Uh, who the Red Sox have been linked to a little bit in the last week. Um, you know, if the Giants decide that they're going to sell off their bullpen, you could get in on someone like Will Smith. Uh, I know Boston was scouting Toronto and Detroit, I believe it was last night. So you could get in on Shane Green, mm. who's Detroit's closer. Mm. Now, everyone in the league is going to be in on Shane Green, sure. and, and Detroit is probably you know, going to deal off anything that's not nailed down. But you know, that's the type of guy who, who you might be able to add. Uh, you know, if the Rangers decide to trade Mike Miner, that means they might try to trade Sean Kelly, too, who's their closer. Right. Maybe you could get involved with him. Um, you know, so by trading for Cashner and executing the deal the way that they did and forcing Baltimore to pay all of his salary, you've left the door open to potentially making another move. You don't have to declare yourself done here. Yeah. And, and I, think it's, I think it's really important to take note of the fact that by staying under the tax, it's not that the Red Sox don't want to pay the money. 
Well, they have all the money in the world. They have it's all not, the money yeah, in the world. Right. I understand that. And they went over the tax last year. It's not It's not that they don't want to spend. They don't want to give up the draft capital. Right. That's what it is. Their first pick this year was 43rd overall. They don't want to be down there anymore. If they miss the playoffs and they end up picking 22nd, they don't want that to turn into 32nd because they went through the tax right. again. Right. Um, it has nothing to do with the finances. It has everything to do with rebuilding the system. And one of the biggest criticisms of the Red Sox, and Dave Dombrowski specifically, the last two or three years, is he's strip-mining the farm system. He's trading all these guys out and bringing in veterans. You know, what do we have for the future? Well, maybe just once, he's deciding not to do that. You know, and now he's being criticized, and John Henry's being criticized because it looks like because they don't want going, to spend. Right, you're not going out and getting somebody. There really is no win for them at this point. You're you're <laughs> at a spot where if you're going to trade for someone like Shane Green, Sean Kelly, um, you know Marcus Stroman, even you know somebody like that. That'd be interesting. You get Stroman over here and have, uh, have you know, call you, the game. You, you want to get in on Matthew Boyd, let's say, the lefty mm-hmm. for the Tigers. Right. It's going to cost you two or three significant prospects to do that. Right. And all of a sudden, your system goes back from you know, sort of creeping out of that bottom 10 maybe next year right back to down. all the way back into the bottom five again. So I, I think you know, in that respect, the Cashner deal was very well done. You gave up two guys who weren't in your organizational top 60. Yep. You didn't take on any money. Thought that was really intelligent by them. Um, if they're able to make a similar deal for a reliever, you know, for a lesser prospect, good. They've left the door open to do it. I think they should. Well, they're going to have to, I think, if they if um, if they want to uh, keep pace here and, and at least climb back into the race. Uh, you know, if as you said, if they go five and nine over the next two weeks, then what's the point? Um, but um, if they are able to find some bullpen help, come out of that stretch nine and five or. 10 and 4 even or something you know that's probably a little too uh, ambitious but something like that then uh, then you know then you're in business and then, then you're right in the thick of things maybe uh you know with the return of of uh Valdi and Moreland and um and uh, the addition of of Cashner you know no maybe you finish down the stretch on a high note and get yourself into the playoffs but you know it, it's been such a frustrating team to watch bill because there have been as as we've said many times these these glimmers of of hope so to speak where it looked like maybe right. they've turned things around a little bit and they've got things on the right track and then david price goes down to baltimore and gets bombed right <laughs> the the interesting thing about this is you know if they win the last two games in baltimore There'll be 10 games over 500, which will be the first time in double digits this year. Right. And yet it still feels like they're running uphill. They're, they're right, not right. really firing on all cylinders. Right. Well, it's because, it's because they've got two teams still ahead of them that are playing even better. And, and, right. uh, and they've got all these teams they have to climb over to, to get back into the wild card. So. Right. Uh, so, Bill, before we wrap up the uh, this edition of the Twin Bills, we would be remiss if we don't touch upon the passing of Pumpsy Green. Yes. Who uh, died uh, this past week. I believe he was 85 years old. Correct. And uh, the significance, of course, of Pumpsy Green is that he is the first black player for the Boston Red Sox. Um, who joined the team? I want to say 1959. July 1959. Um, you know, wasn't a great player, but was a pretty good player. 
And, uh, you know, he was the first African-American on the last team to integrate. Yes. Uh, and so, therefore, he holds a uh, pretty significant spot in Red Sox history. Yeah. Uh, Pumsey Green, described by Red Sox owner John Henry in a statement this week, is the reluctant pioneer. Mm. Uh, you know, somebody who who didn't want, you know, the accolades or, or the acknowledgement that he was the first African-American player for the Red Sox. Uh, he just wanted to play baseball. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in debuting for the Red Sox on July 21st, 1959, um, he finally, his playing in that game, finally it forced the team to address what's the most shameful chapter in their history. Mm. Uh, Twelve years after Jackie Robinson debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers, three years after Robinson retired from the Brooklyn Dodgers. Who you could have had as a Red Sox fan. Who you could have had, who yeah. was offered to you in a so, tryout in 1945. And Willie Mays as well. Willie Mays as well. Uh, but your owner, Tom Yawkey, was a racist. Uh, had racist leanings. Uh, didn't want to sign black players. Um, you know, didn't, certainly didn't want to put them on the field. Right. Uh, you know, Boston being the city that it was, with the history that it had, uh, all the way into forced busing in the 70s has a very bad record on, on race relations. Um, you know, and that's something that, that still lingers to this day. Nowhere near the severity of it in the 60s and in the 70s. But if you look at NBA free agency, it's something that comes up all the time. Mm. In a league predominantly populated by African-American players, there is still the perception out there that Boston is a racist city mm. in some way. Um, so into all that, parachutes Pumsey Green in 1959 uh, an infielder who played four seasons with the Sox, a final season with the Mets, uh, returned to California, served as a truant officer and a baseball coach at Berkeley High School uh, until his retirement, was married to his wife for 62 years, um, you know, built the house, actually, that they still lived in to this day, hmm, wow. um, you know, used his money that he made with the Red Sox to invest in a property that now would probably be worth millions sure. if his wife decided to sell it yeah. uh, you know, in suburban San Francisco in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, but really, such an important player in the team's history, and, and it has nothing to do with what happened on the field. It has to do with the fact that now, the most recent Red Sox championship team, you had an African-American as the American League MVP, Mookie Betts. You had an African-American gold glove, gold glove winner right next to him in Jackie Bradley Jr., and you had probably what should have been the World Series MVP, an African-American in David Price. At least a uh, co-MVP, right? At least the co-MVP with Steve <laughs> Pierce. Yeah. So 60 years on from this shameful legacy created by Tom Yawkey and, and you know, sort of the original sin of the Red Sox, uh, you have these great black stars on the team. Um, and I think that, if that is the legacy of Pumsey Green, you know, the reluctant pioneer aside, if that is his legacy, the fact that this team now has turned into a franchise that welcomes players of all races, all creeds, all faith, sure. and that they continue to be that going forward under Henry and whatever ownership groups follow him, right. and, I think that's the most important thing to take away. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look back, I think as a Red Sox fan, you can certainly take some pride in the fact that some of the greatest Red Sox players over the last few decades have been people have been men of color. Yes. Pedro Martinez, Jim, Jim Rice, Rice, David Ortiz. Right. Yes. Uh, 
So uh, certainly the, the the club has come a long way. Obviously, you know the, there was the renaming of Yawkey Way that that um, back to Jersey Street, right? right so that people uh, you know were on both sides of that issue. But it was certainly something that at least this ownership group was was very aware of and willing to take on. You, I, I mean, it's so many issues of race go back to: Are you willing to have the conversation? Right. And, and are you willing to make changes based on the conversation? Uh, and I think that this ownership group, um, you know, whether it's through renaming Yawkey Way uh, or, you know, launching their Take the Lead initiative with the Celtics, the Patriots and the right. Bruins uh, to try to eradicate racism in the stands, uh, you know, try to you know, sort of police the fans and, and sort of take that out of, of their athletic venues. Yep. Uh, I think that's commendable. That started in 2017. And you know, I think it's just important that you know, professional sports franchises, the Red Sox and everyone else, continue to be proactive and encouraging on this issue. Absolutely. Well, with that, we will wrap up the um, the uh, the weekly Twin Bills podcast. Um, let's see, Bill. A week from now, are you on the road? No, they're back, right? They're back. I will be here. And that's right. They're back because they, they, the they come back. Here. They come back to face the Yankees. So we will uh, we will resume then and see where we are. No question. Thanks, Bill. All right, Bill.